Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. We do indeed, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your redemption, for the great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that we would see um, just how wonderful his redemption is this morning, that we may never want to move uh, from being his people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do sit down. Uh, well, again, uh, welcome to you, and uh, something that you might find useful to do would be to uh, uh, grab hold of your Bible, the reading uh, that Mark read for us just a little bit earlier, page 700 is the uh, page number uh, in the Bible as we continue to look through uh, this section of Isaiah uh, from chapters 13 through to 27, uh, and there's also a handout uh, for you if you want to see where we're going, uh, you can follow your way through um, in the next little while. Uh, When the church makes an alliance with the world, it it always loses its function and value and unique identity as God's people. During the uh, Russian uh, Revolution, the churches and clergy sided with the czars of Russia because there was already at that stage an established relationship between the Russian Orthodox Church and the czars. And so the church opposed the revolution and worked against the peasants and oppress the masses in their struggle to better their own condition. As a result, there was a backlash against religion during the revolution. Well, there may well have been anyway, but it certainly helped um, those who were heading the, uh, the revolution to, to say what they said. So in the first uh, legal newspaper of the Russian Democratic Labour Party, Lenin wrote these words, uh, famous words at the end of this quote, Religion is one of the forms of spiritual oppression which everywhere weighs down heavily upon the masses of the people. Those who toil and live in want all their lives are taught by religion to be submissive and patient while here on earth and to take comfort in the hope of heavenly reward. While those who live by the labour of others are taught by religion to practice charity while on earth, thus offering them a very cheap way of justifying their entire existence as exploiters and selling them at a moderate price tickets to a well-being in heaven. And then these famous words, religious is opium for the people. Religion is a sort of spiritual booze. So in that article, Lenin concluded that... um, Religion should be a private matter, as he wrote. That was interesting. A lot of people think that Lenin thought there should be no um, religion at all. He just said, no, it should be private. And so he wrote these words. Complete separation of church and state is what the socialist proletariat demands of the modern state and the modern church. Well, once uh, Stalin came to power a few years later and had stabilised the country, he began to promote the growth of the Russian Orthodox Church, but he opposed all other forms of religion and only allowed the existence of the Russian Orthodox Church in order to support Russian nationalism. Now, I hope I haven't lost you already. These are complex and intricate issues, but even a brief overview of the church in Russia leading up to and during the the Russian Revolution begins to demonstrate how disastrous it is for the church to make an alliance with the world. We can see the appeal of it. Being allied to a nation's leaders gives the church the freedom to remain and therefore, it might be argued, the freedom to proclaim the gospel. The problem, of course, is that once the church is allied to the world, it isn't free to proclaim the gospel because the world doesn't like the gospel. And what's more, the church loses all credibility and loses its unique identity when it is allied to worldly leadership. 
So when 70 years after the revolution, I went to Russia, just as Russia was opening up, when Mikhail Gorbachev was leader and he had uh, introduced glasnost and perestroika, freedom of information and the restructuring of the political economic system, during that time of freedom, as I spoke to young English-speaking Russian students, I found them very open to Jesus Christ, but very suspicious of the Orthodox Church because they knew that the Russian Orthodox Church had compromised. In the thinking of those I spoke to, the established church was no different from the leadership of the nation. And that demonstrates the great problem of the church aligning itself with the world. Now look, it is that temptation to compromise, to make an alliance with the world, that this section of Isaiah is all about. Judah's Temptation is clearly explained by Barry Webb, who writes, uh, and I've put the quote uh, on the handout, as a relatively small nation threatened by great powers, Judah was constantly tempted to look to political and military alliances to save her. The people of Judah were under threat from the Syria-Israel alliance, as you might remember if you were here last week. And rather than uh, trust the Lord as Isaiah called on them to do, they turned to the Assyrians to protect them. They made an alliance with the Assyrians because the Assyrians were the world superpower of the day. Now be sure, making an alliance with the world is a very real and present danger for us too, not just for Russia back 100 years ago, not just for Judah all those years back, uh, but for us too. As we feel under threat from the world around us, rather than keep calm and carry on, rather than trust the Lord, there is a very strong temptation to compromise in order to save our skin. Now, we're witnessing it in the Church of England right now. At the end of last year, the House of Bishops made a unilateral decision to allow men in civil partnerships to be consecrated bishop. There's the church wanting to be like the world. Desperately, in, the autumn, in autumn last year, our own bishop posted on YouTube a call on the church to take a particular line of action because, quote, England expects, end of quote. He argued that we should act in a way that is consistent with what the world wants because that will make us popular with the world and then people will come back to church. That was the rationale. Now, in this section of Isaiah, from chapters 13 to 27, the Lord blows all that thinking apart. The Lord speaks to his people, Judah, pronouncing a series of oracles concerning all the nations that are around them. And in each oracle, the Lord says, let me show you the fate of these nations, and you'll see that it is not a good move to make friends with the world. Well, this week we come to chapters 15 and 16, and you'll see in verse 1 of chapter 15, it's an oracle concerning Moab. Uh, Moab was one of Judah's neighbours. Uh, look uh, at an ancient map of the region and you'll see Moab in the east beyond the Dead Sea. And what we see in this oracle is very similar to what we heard last week in the oracle concerning Babylon. Moab was an attractive place to be. As we read through these two chapters, there are hints of what Moab was like and, and why it had such appeal. In verse 7, we can see, uh, this is verse 7 of chapter 15, we can see the wealth uh, the people of Moab had acquired. A wealth that had come from the natural resources of the land. It was a, a fruitful land, literally. And so in chapter 16, verse 8, we read of the fields and the vines. In the second half of verse 9, we see the people of Moab rejoicing when the ripened fruit was harvested. 
In verse 10, we learn that there were orchards and vineyards. As I read this, I think of the rolling hills of the Ardennes in France. Indeed, I think of the, the entire Champagne area in, in, north, in the northeast of France. Similar to the way Champagne has become a great commercial centre, the Moabites had become wealthy from cultivating the land and planting fruitful vineyards. So while Moab wasn't a world superpower, she wasn't short of a bob or two either. And so as Judah looked over the garden fence, as it were, Moab was the sort of neighbour she'd have been tempted to make an alliance with. Moab was a wealthy nation with a natural resource that was very lucrative. And, uh, well, wealth is always very appealing when you feel under threat. I don't know how about you, but I'm always tempted to look to money as my security, both as an individual and as a church leader. It feels as if money can dig us out of any hole. And that's a way of thinking that is a constant temptation through these chapters. So making an alliance with Moab was very tempting. And because Moab wasn't Babylon, the nation we were looking at last week, because Moab wasn't Babylon, not as powerful and not as blatantly anti-God as Babylon, so siding with Moab would have seemed like, well, not such a big compromise, not so bad after all. Again, as Christians and as a church, aren't we more tempted to think it's okay to compromise in small ways? We can see that we shouldn't throw our lot in with Babylon, with a world so against God, but to, to be in with Moab was a very real temptation to Judah. And so in this oracle, the Lord makes it very clear that uh, first point on the handout, uh, two-thirds of the way down the first, uh, the first page, the Lord makes it very clear, first point, Moab has no future, chapter 15, verses 1 to 9. See, in this chapter, we're given a picture, a prophecy of what is to come. Moab will be destroyed, verse 1. And so throughout chapter 15, we hear the noise of a whole nation mourning. The people of Moab are wailing in verse 2, weeping in verse 3, crying out loud in verse 4. And they're doing that as the nation is ruined, verse 1, destroyed in a night. Now, this chapter paints a picture of utter desolation through the whole land. As we listen to the reading, uh, as Mark, I thought, read brilliantly with all those difficult words, I imagine the many place names were, were somewhat bewildering and meant very little to us. But understanding the geography paints an important picture for us. Uh, in verse 8, we read these words. Their wailing reaches as far as Eglim, their lamentation as far as Beer Elim. Uh, for us, uh, that doesn't mean very much. But let me tell you, Eglim is the most northerly point in Moab. The most southerly is Bia Elim. And so for us, verse 8 reads, from Land's End to John O'Groats, there was wailing and lamentation. The whole nation is weeping. Now, the chapter cites towns and cities all over Moab. Again, in our language, it would go like this. In Carlisle, they go to the cathedral to weep. In Penzance, they cry out and their voices were heard all the way up to Bristol. They go up to Coventry, weeping as they go. On the road to Middlesbrough, they lament their destruction. Their outcry echoes along the borders of Kent. That's the kind of geographical spread in this chapter. The point is this. Everywhere throughout the whole nation, you can hear people grieving. In verse 3, we hear the sound of wailing in the streets, on, on the housetops, and in the public squares. 
And so the point is, the length and breadth of the country, and in every place, in every city, there is crying and weeping and wailing. And as we read through the chapter, we see verse 5, fugitives fleeing. And then the names of the places that follow tell us that they're heading south. So if I were to say to you they fled from Newcastle to Sheffield, from Sheffield to Birmingham, from Birmingham to London, and from London to Brighton, you'd instantly get the direction of travel. So yes, the names in chapter 15 are unfamiliar to us, but to the first readers, the names are are clearly speaking of people fleeing south. Not hard to establish that this is predicting an attack from the north. And I suggest an attack from the Assyrians, for the Assyrians were in the north and they were a seemingly unstoppable force. This is predicting the mighty Assyrian military machine coming down from the north and sweeping through the whole land. And as the Assyrians swept through the nation from the north, and as we see the Moabites fleeing, from the, uh, fleeing to the south, we see them, verse 7, carrying all their worldly goods. Gives me the picture of, of all these goods piled up on rickety old carts pulled by a panting donkey. And as we watch them flee, we see that, co- that, that the countryside is devastated. Verse 6, the waters of Nimrim are dried up and the grass is withered. The vegetation is gone and nothing green is left. Remember, this was a nation that was lucrative because of uh, such rich vegetation. Now it's in ruins. But it's not only the land that has been destroyed. The loss of life was so extensive that, verse 9, Dimmon's waters are full of blood. It's, it's an horrific uh, scene of, of human carnage. The waters of the rivers flowing with the blood of people. But even that's not the end, verse 9. Dimmon's waters are full of blood, but I will bring still more upon Dimmon. This then is a picture of an entire nation utterly destroyed and ruined. Uh, So as we saw last week, the message to Judah is clear. Don't make an alliance with Moab. Uh, Looking at her vineyards and the wealth that comes from the fruit of the land, she appeared to be such an attractive place to run, but she has no future. It's a very similar message to the oracle concerning Babylon that we saw last week. But what is most striking about this oracle is what comes next. So we've seen Moab has no future. And so our second point over the page on the, and the handout, Moab looks to Judah, chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. See, as the Moabite refugees are chased out of their land, they will turn to Judah for protection. Is that striking? First, they send gifts to try and buy a favourable response. Verse 1, send lambs as tribute to the ruler of the land, from Selah across the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Zion, Jerusalem. These people, these fleeing refugees, are looking to Judah as a place of refuge. So verse 1 is not so much cash for questions, but gifts for residency. For the Moabites feel like, Verse 2, fluttering birds pushed from the nest. It's a powerful picture of baby birds that fall out of their nest or are kicked out by the rogue interloper, the cuckoo. These little birds, not quite fledglings, out of the nest, away from their mother, are homeless and vulnerable. So, verse 2, are the women of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. 
See, as the Assyrians marched through Moab, the Moabite refugees were vulnerable and helpless, and so they turned to Judah for safety, to God's people. And in verse 3, they're pleading for an answer. Will you let us in? Please protect us, they say in verse 3. Give us counsel. Render a decision. Make your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the fugitives. Do not betray the refugees. Let the Moabite fugitives stay with you. Be their shelter from the destroyer. They need immediate refuge. But they also long, yearn for long-term security. And that comes from Judah's Messiah. And so the Lord promises, verse 4, the oppressor will come to an end and destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. Here is the wonderful promise of a Messiah. The promise that Isaiah has already uh, pointed to, the promise of one from the house of David. We looked at it briefly in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 last week. It's also the promise of the whole of chapter 11. It's the promise of one who will establish his throne and set up an everlasting kingdom. A kingdom of, do you see it there in verse 5, justice and peace and righteousness. And back in chapter 2, which we don't need to turn to at the moment, but back in chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, Isaiah has already prophesied a time when the nations would run to Zion and to Judah's God. That's what this is talking about. And so do you see why this is such a powerful oracle to the people of Judah to hear? As the people of God were threatened by the might of the world, they would have been very tempted to turn to Moab, to look to Moab for protection, to make an alliance with Moab. But this oracle says Moab will be destroyed. Don't turn to them. And what's more, when that happens, the Moabites will actually run to you, to God's people for protection. So not only should Judah not run to Moab, even though it may look like an attractive option, but Judah, as we've been hearing right throughout this service, should remain distinct from Moab in order for Moab to have somewhere to run. The Russian Orthodox Church made an alliance with the world, first with the Tsars, then with Stalin. And so when people felt desperate and without anything, they didn't run to the established church because the Russian Orthodox Church wasn't distinct from the world. Desperately, so much of the Church of England has become like that. So that as people turn to Jesus, they don't turn to the C of E because they see it as a place of compromise and of dead religion, offering nothing distinct from the world that they're running from. So you see, I think of the recession as it continues to grip our nation. All over the land, people are lamenting the squeeze from north to south and everywhere in between, in homes and in the public squares, times are hard. In the boom times, we lived off the fat of the land, but now most feel overrun. And so regularly through these last three or four years, my prayer has been for people to run to the church where they will meet the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can give them the security that they want and need. But look, no one will turn to the church if the church looks no different from the world. Here's why we must remain distinctive. Distinctive in what we believe. Distinctive in what we stand for. Distinctive in how we live, how we live toward one another. 
distinctive in what makes us tick. And here's the encouragement to us. If we are distinctive, people will run to us when they feel overrun by the world. And friends, when when you and I attempted to run to Moab for security, well, then we need to look at verse 5 and remember what we've got. Why do we want to run to anyone else and throw away such a glorious future with the Messiah? A future where Jesus rules with love and where faithfulness and justice and righteousness reign supreme. Moab has no future, so don't run to Moab. Secondly, Moab looks to Judah, so remain distinctive. And thirdly, and and more briefly, our third point, Moab's pride is judged. Verses 6 to 14. We saw it last week, and here it is again. Judgment, God's judgment, comes upon the nations because of their pride. Verse 6, we've heard of Moab's pride, her overweening pride and conceit, her pride and her insolence. But her boasts are empty. Therefore, the Moabites will wail. They will wail together for Moab. It's clear, isn't it? They are proud. And pride, as we thought last week, always rejects God. Pride says, I'm self sufficient. I don't need you, God. Pride is a a go it alone principle. And that actually is why pride is judged by God, because it is the root of rejecting God. But what has struck me this week in preparation is the reason for Moab's pride. See, as we look through these verses and see what, uh, we see what is destroyed. Verse 8, the fields and vines wither. Chapter 16, verse 8. The vines that were once so healthy have gone. Verse 9, the people of Moab are weeping for the vines and the ripened fruit that has been crushed. In verse 10, they are robbed of joy because the vineyards have been torn down. Do you see, the Moabites were proud because of what they'd made of themselves through the fruit of the land. But whose land is it if it isn't the Lord's? He made the world and everything in it. And who makes the vines grow and fruitful if it isn't the Lord? I can plant the seed, you can water it, but God makes it grow. The Moabites had nothing to be proud of. They should have been thankful to the Lord. Thankful that that, that he had given them such a wonderful and fruitful land. Not proud of their own achievements. But then as I've been thinking about this this week, it seems to me that we're no different from the Moabites. Here in Sheffield, we love to boast of the glorious place we live in. Look, I've only lived here for seven years and I love to tell people what a great part of the country I live in with the Peak District on my doorstep. And as I tell people, I feel proud. What have I got to be proud about? I didn't put it here, I just moved here. And so do you see both the Moabites and the Forwardites, as we boast of the land we live in, we rob God of what is rightly his. We rob him of his glory. We try to take the credit. And when we do that, when our livelihood and our wealth and our well-being is tied up in the area, we soon think that we are something. We think that we've made something of ourselves, and in the process, we we sideline God. That, verse 6, is the pride, the conceit, the boasting insolence that will be judged. But remarkably, it will be judged by the Lord with a tear in his eye. Look back to chapter 15 and verse 5. The Lord says, 
My heart cries out over Moab. Look at chapter 16 and verse 9. The Lord says, I weep as Jazir weeps. And then halfway through that verse, I drench you with tears. Yeah, it grieves the Lord to see our pride, but that's not the main point. The point is this, the Lord brought this judgment on the pride of Moab with a tear in his eye and with the express purpose that Moab would turn back to him. And that's why we must live a life of dependence upon the Lord. Not looking to the world for deliverance, but in humble dependence, demonstrating to a watching world that we rely on him for everything. So that when people are crushed by the world around them, they will run to us, God's people, knowing that we are distinctively different. And knowing that we will not point to ourselves, but to Jesus, our Messiah and theirs. The one of verse 5. The one who we and they need to rely upon for a secure future. A future that is out of this world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask you to forgive us for our pride. Uh, Forgive us that so often when we feel overrun by the world, we then look to another part of the world to rescue us. Help us to see the warnings of these chapters, uh, not to run to the world, not to run to Moab or Babylon or any other of the uh, nations that we see around us, Uh, but rather to keep calm, to keep trusting you. And we pray that as we do that and as we remain distinctive, that when the world sees that they need uh, saving themselves, they'll know where to run. And they'll find here a place of security, not because we're secure, but because we point them to the Lord Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.